Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see all of you here today. I would love to ask, um, perhaps, uh, how are God's people today? I'm just asking. I just want to know. You doing all right? Right? You didn't have a meltdown? I mean, whether this week went the way you... Just a minute. I'm stuck. There we go. All right. We got this. We got this. Well, I just didn't know, you know, for, I mean, people are uh, all over the place and some people had a great week and said, man, is this initiative or that uh, part of it? I don't know. And other people, not so much. I'm just curious how y'all are doing. And I hope that you're walking in faith, that you're remembering that God is still on the throne. Um, There has not been a change in the ownership of the universe this past week and uh, God can be trusted. So however it all went, for you. Let's not forget that. Greetings to you all who are joining us uh, online. Good to have you with us. I value very much hearing from many of our folks who worship at home or are in other parts of the country or the world, and it matters a lot as we hear from people that, that you're out there. So thank you for that. I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3. And, of course, the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know, will be very helpful to you in keeping track of where we're going. You're aware that we are in week seven of an eight-week series that we have uh, had under the heading of thinking Christianly about all of life, and today in week seven, not only thinking Christianly, but talking Christianly in a divided world It is not by accident that we have arrived at this place today. It really was by intent uh, as we laid out these topics that we would want to talk about, aware that perhaps, at least in the week following an election, that thinking together about how we talk might just be a good thing. And so here we go. Thinking Christianly, of course, as you have in front of you there, we've wanted to emphasize both biblical content and a Christ-honoring attitude, and that, of course, is um, especially significant as we think about the words that we say. I wanted to give a, a, a nod, a shout out to both Matt and Tyler for the last two weeks um, as we laid out uh, this series and we looked ahead to a sermon on gender and then likewise race. Um, those guys took those topics and I said, yes, good job. And I so valued what they did for us the last couple of weeks. They did a fantastic job, and I'm very, very grateful for for that. Um, Very helpful, not only for all of us, but for me personally. I appreciated that a lot. As you come to the little paragraph called today's topic, I'd like you to think with me about this. It is not hard for us to look around and see that we live in an an age where civility is remarkably lacking. Uh, This has gone on a long time, of course, way beyond our time. As we'll see in a few moments in the book of James, uh, the misuse of words, the hurtful use of words, uh, and of course the corresponding ill motive of the heart, these are not new things. Uh, But in today's digital age, some of you have had the misfortune of commenting on something as innocuous as organic gardening or vegetables or dairy, we would say, inoculations or politics, and you've said something online. How dare you? And you have been thoroughly schooled, slapped, called all man or other stuff by people you thought were your friends. And I know that this is rampant, not only in the world, 
But unfortunately, even among God's people. And among the things that I would like for us to have just jump out of the text at us today would be the line from verse 10 in James 3, as we'll read it in a moment. Uh, My friends, these things ought not to be so. It ought not to be so among us. Now, I brought a few resources, of course, because I just want to emphasize to, uh, to us the significant nature of this business of communication in today's divided world. Some of these I've referenced before. Uh, I, I just finished this little book, um, Oz Guinness. I have two from Oz Guinness here, Last Call for Liberty, which uh, LCL, later on in my notes, you'll see that book referenced. That's the one, LCL, Last Call for Liberty. How America's genius for freedom has become its greatest threat. We'll talk a bit about that, in a couple concepts here in a moment. I, I took a look earlier some months ago at this book, Tim Keller and John Inazu, who is a, no, really, a Christian attorney. And uh, it's called Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Forgive the jab at attorneys, you, you understand. Easy, easy, Mark. Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. From there, I thought, I should read what this John Inazu has to say more. So I picked up this one called Confident Pluralism, uh, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. And both of these books in particular delve into a lot of, of American issues when it comes to our history as a country, the things that our founders set out to establish for us, a place where we didn't all have to think the same, but we would still treat each other right. That was part of the original creation of our country. It wasn't all about everyone thinking the same. It was about treating people well when they didn't think the same. Interesting. Oz Guinness, again, The Case for Civility, uh, a book I reference again in the notes coming up. Really helpful, again, thinking about America. And then uh, uh, 20 years ago, Paul Tripp wrote this book called War of Words. Why would you need to write a book like this? Largely for God's people. Hmm? We'll just let that percolate for a minute. War of words, getting to the heart of our communication struggles. More recently, a whole bunch of blogs about publicly uh, being kind. But November's Christianity Today. Again, why would you have these articles? Here's, here's one called, When the Pews Are Polarized. In a divided culture and divisive election year, pastors are striving for unity. And then, same magazine. Another writer who takes a swing at it using the similar terms, civility is not enough. And the point of this article, of course, is, is the reflection that if you mean by civility only not taking somebody apart verbally, you're gritting your teeth and you so want to, but you're going, okay, I'm going to love them for Jesus, <laughs> that somehow you're missing the, the goal. <laughs> true civility. Well, we're going to come today to God's word, and uh, we have a lot to think about. I'd like you to think with me about this topic, both in terms of you as a person, so our individual speech, and then we'll take a step further to the, the corporate presentation of the body of Christ in the public space. Okay? So we'll step on toes both places, and I would love to have us pray that God would use his word. So do that with me, please. Our Father, we come to your word today so aware of our need for you. We have many things in our lives that drive us to you again and again. And 
our words are one of those things. We say things, and sometimes we're surprised at what we say, and yet, as we'll see, those words flow from our hearts. And Father, as a Christian community, we so long to, to represent you well in, a, in, a, in the broader context of a culture that is turning away in larger measure from you. Oh, sometimes we want to just let them have it, whoever that is. And yet to speak redemptively, oh, not unclearly, but redemptively, oh, Father, help us. So we trust you now as we step into your word and then reflect on these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to James, I want to read all of James 3 and then four reminders from verses 1 through 12. Uh, as James speaks very directly about this business of words. Now, you'll remember as we come to this chapter and as part of this book, uh, James, of course, this book is written by James, the half-brother of Christ. And it is a book that has, that down through the years has been somewhat debated because he presses so hard on the idea that faith is not just something in your heart that you believe. Oh, it's that. But it must percolate through every area of your life. There is a practical nature to faith. And James presses so hard on that topic that some down through the years has said, are you talking about, you know, being right with God by works? Well, he isn't, but he is pressing very hard on this issue. And in chapter three, then your words, very, very practical. Uh, So let's hear the word of God then together as I read all of James chapter three, God's word. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Imagine. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, as clearly is indicated in the text, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wow. There are certain texts in the Bible that people read and they say at the conclusion, that was really hard to understand. James 3 is not one of those texts. (laughs) This is not difficult to understand, but it's incredibly difficult to do. And I realize today that I am speaking to an audience in which every single person listening will rightly say, I have some things to learn here. There is not one person who can say, I remember back in the day when I struggled with my words periodically. Sure glad those days are gone. No, no, we're, we are indeed uh, all uh, in a place where we have much to learn from the text. Well, uh, as you look at your sermon notes, you see the things that I want to do. Uh, there, are four, there are four reminders, four warnings in these first 12 verses. And I just want to work through those with you. And then I want to talk about our speech, both in the private sphere and in the public sector. And then I'd like to spend a few moments with, with the Lord as we think about that. Well, verses 1 and 2, James begins this discussion of speech with a, with a, a reminder to those who, who teach that they're accountable to God for their words. Now, all of us are accountable to God for our words, aren't we? Uh, Jesus said something of that nature when he said, but I say to you that for every idle word a person shall speak, they'll give account of it in the day of judgment. But here he is speaking specifically to those who would be teachers of some sort. And he says, slow down on that there, tiger. Uh, There's an accountability for what you say. Now, I quickly would say, not only you think of a teacher or a preacher or someone who stands in front, uh, people who teach also go by the titles of mom and dad, don't they? And in the work setting, and about any other place where you say something hoping somebody will pay attention to you. Now, James is not discouraging people from being teachers. He's not. But he's saying, pay attention to what you're doing, but please be aware. There's an accountability for what you say. I tell you what, I, I, I think about this sometimes in the dark of night, and it's terrifying. How easily you can stand up in front of people and say something that is, is foolish uh, or ought not to come out of your mouth. And I think, oh, Lord, <laughs> deliver me. Please help. I, I just I don't want to go down in flames having said something and thought, oh, my goodness sakes. Um, I hope your words sometimes, the power of your words, I hope, I hope that you pay attention to this. I hope you do. There's an accountability. I really believe one of the challenges in our, in our um, uh, online forums, one of the reasons they've gotten so uncivil in these days is because of the lack of accountability. You introduce anonymity, and all of a sudden people say all manner of things because nobody will know it was you. 
Uh, I remember the day as online forums first began when often after news stories there were places for comment. I don't think they do that anymore, do they? Or at least there's not a running tabulation. I, I see it now and then in other forums, other settings, Instagram and so on, where people can comment. You go, hmm, that wasn't always good. There was a post yesterday I read from, uh, who was it? I think it was a Tim Keller post. And uh, there were, oh, I don't know, dozens and dozens of comments. And the second one that I read said, I've made the mistake of reading the comments. <laughs> and of course, that piqued my interest. So I had to read the comments and I went, yeah, I get your point. Um, here we are, uh, ostensibly a Christian crowd, whoever's reading Tim Keller. Must you do that after reading a post you disagree with? Must you air whatever your little heart's thinking? I'm going to correct them all now. Well, apparently that seems to be a problem. And accountability and words should go together. And a reminder here as James begins, uh, those who use words, especially those who teach, please be aware. There's an accountability to God for what you say. Uh, So, may I say, let your words maybe be fewer than they are. And I think that's in Ecclesiastes uh, as well. Let your words be few. Uh, think about that. Um, verse, uh, the second element here, verses 3 to 5. Your words have incredible power. That's the idea here. Now, for good, um, I'm reminded, of course, of one of the, of the Proverbs. There are several sprinkled throughout uh, your sermon notes and your small group notes. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. All of us have had the benefit at some point in our life from someone who has spoken really helpful words at the right time. Now, James here gives two illustrations, doesn't he? Verses 3, 4, and 5. He talks about horses and boats. Well, those are rather diverse. But in an ancient world in particular, people were a little more connected with their horses because they got around that way more than we do. But a bit in bridle. I remember going to summer camp, doing the horsemanship track a number of years. Um, I had a great time with that. I still think I know how to do all of those things to get a horse ready to ride. Um, but I remember being taught early on as, as a kid, when you learn some of these skills, the power of the bit in a horse's mouth. And someone who doesn't realize what they're doing can quickly yank that thing around too much and actually hurt the horse and arouse rebellion in the horse because you're hurting him too much. A well-trained horse and a well-trained rider doesn't need to yank the, the reins around much. But a good horse and a good rider who knows what to do, you can control a lot just very gently with that, with that bit and bridle. You don't need to yank their head around. Uh, usually you see it in the movies and it's like, uh-huh, poor horse. Horse doesn't like you right now. You're hurting him. Well, James is just pointing out that little piece has tremendous power. And of course, on a boat, the rudder can turn the whole ship. And he's simply saying, your tongue, though very small, has tremendous power for good, for healing, or for hurt, for turning things in ways they ought not to be turned. Now, he goes a little further here in verses 5 through 8, doesn't he? Because he's using the example of a forest fire. James is great on illustrations, isn't he? Horses, boats, forests ablaze. And I have on your notes here this little fill-in. Your words can be flat-out dangerous, can't they? Like a forest fire, man. You want to light it up? Think of the dry tinder available in a world 
where there's a lot of concern and pain and difficulty and hurting people. Think of that as dry tinder. And along comes a tongue. And he says, how great a fire, a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, a couple of months ago, well, last month, October, several of us were at the uh, a pastor's conference, ISCA, a regional conference. We're, a, as a church, a part of ISCA International. It's a fellowship of Bible churches. And so we were meeting with a number of guys in the, in the area. And one of them, uh, pastors down in southern Oregon. And in, in their community, they were deeply affected by the fires here just recently. Um, I think, he, I, if I remember, statistics were somewhat... Uh, now faded six weeks later, the local grade school, it was something like 80% of the kids were either homeless or homes were badly damaged. Can you imagine that? 80%. How do you even begin to address a, a need like that? Okay, everybody, sit down and pay attention to your, to your, to your topic today. How are you going to do that when, when that many kids in, in one area are so dramatically affected? How do you address all the family needs? Um, my goodness sakes, uh, just, just uh, the, the emotion of this, the loss. Well, a fire, man, a fire went through it. Your words can be flat out dangerous. I mentioned here in your study notes, I, I asked first hour, do kids still learn the slogan, sticks and stones can break my bones? And there were some kids first hour, they finished that. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but who made that up? Has it ever been true? It's never been true. It's, it's, uh, it's a goal, isn't it? To say words won't hurt me. But has that ever been true in your life? When you were a child and when you're an adult? It has never been true for you or for me. That sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Oh, we, I think we teach that to our kids, or we, we thought it was a good idea to teach that to, to our kids to say aspirationally. You, you know, you just kind of push it off and don't listen to that stuff. But then you come home and cry. And I dare say every person in this room at some point has come home and cried because of words that were spoken from a parent or a coach, from a child, um, anybody of significance in your life. And I'm not asking you to do it, but I already know the answer. Uh, it, wouldn't take you, it wouldn't take you 10 seconds to draw to mind words that you maybe heard years ago that left a mark. And that's what James is talking about. Your tongue is a deadly poison. Hey, folks, <laughs> that, was a, that was a devastating uh, paragraph the tongue is set among our members. My goodness, stains the whole course of, of, of life, set on fire by hell itself. James uses the term Gehenna, which interestingly, outside of Jerusalem, you go back, this is the early days. Outside Jerusalem, there was a valley called the Valley of Gehenna. Jesus refers to that a lot. That was like the garbage pit. They didn't have a central garbage place. So you have an area where you go and throw your stuff Whatever it is, you know, your household trash, uh, animal carcasses were out there. uh, Everything was out there. And there were fires burning everywhere. And if you've ever been in a place where where trash is, I mean, I don't just mean paper trash. I mean, other stuff trash has been burning. It's awful. Sometimes, yeah, if you've been into a third world country and that's how they deal with trash in the community, been there, got that t-shirt, and you know the, the aroma... Oh, 
Well, that's what James is tapping into here. It's set on fire by Gehenna. You know, remember that? Everybody's listening to this, James. Yep, I got that. I understand that. The earlier book in the New Testament, James is. And they're understanding this. He's saying that's what your tongue can do. It can stink it up. It can hurt so profoundly. Do you know? No human being can tame the tongue. Now, I look at verses 9 through 12, and I, I want to think deeply here as well. Your words reveal the conflict in your heart. There is conflict in your heart. And that's what he's pressing on here. With it, he says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. There's conflict in the human heart. Ultimately, it reveals our need for Christ and the gospel. And as we think about this together, you'll remember with me uh, how clearly the Bible says in numerous places, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, now listen to this, please. Uh, sometimes in talking about uh, the, the tongue and the power of the tongue and the power of our words, we end up walking away having heard the wrong thing. We end up walking away saying, I'll talk less. I'll be like Job in Job 40. I'll lay my hand on my mouth. Well, that's maybe you should. But that isn't the ultimate solution, is it? Because the the problems we have with our lips, listen, we need to trace it directly to the problems we have in our heart. Because, track with this, critical words generally flow from a critical heart. Unkind words flow from an unkind heart. Unloving words flow, flow from an unloving heart. Impure words flow from an impure heart, and you can go right down the list, can't you? So, so rather than just saying, I'll talk less, or I'll shut my mouth, you won't hear from me anymore. The gospel would call us to cry out to God and say, oh God, my heart, help my heart. Starting with, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need him as your Savior, You can take a walk all day long and you're not going to fix your heart. You need Christ, the living Christ within you, who by the Spirit of God can begin a process of change that all by yourself you cannot ever start and get through. You you can't do it. It takes the Spirit of God working in your heart to change the things that you think come out of your mouth because it's a problem of the heart. Now, I'm not saying don't take a walk. I'm not saying don't shut your mouth a little more. I'm not saying don't count to 10. I don't mean that. Well, it might be good, good places to start. But I am saying this. True and lasting change with our words comes from true and lasting change in our heart. And that is produced by the Spirit of God. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, start right there with that. Where you cry out to God and say, I trust Jesus as my Savior. I need a Savior. And your words should be prompting you to see that need more than anything else. So I'm saying the words, our words reveal the conflict in our hearts. If anything should cause you to cry out to God, please help me. It should be listening to yourself for about five minutes. Okay, do you hear me on this? Yeah, I hope so. Lord, please help me. Please help me. Now, I want to step to this section and just, uh, I want to talk about this both in our, 
in our immediate interaction and in the public setting just a bit. I, I say here, our world needs models of civil speech and behavior. Two quotes from Oz Guinness that begin to apply some of these warnings from James. I'm just going to read that first one. This is from Last Call for Liberty. Uh, he says, when the Jewish and Christian consensus held sway in the English-speaking world, there was an unspoken etiquette, a courtesy, a civility that characterized the general way of speaking, at least for most people and in public. Not only did this consensus erode and collapse in the 50s and 60s, it was assaulted and overthrown. And, of course, we're seeing the continuation of this today. Some of you who have a few years on others in the room will remember when the movie Gone with the Wind was such a scandal. Gone with the Wind? For goodness sakes, what was that all about? Well, it's because at the end of Gone with the Wind, there's a certain line that included a word that was not considered appropriate for the airwaves. My, how things have changed. Uh, that term uh, was, was pretty mild by today's terms and probably would flow through some of our houses without a second thought, perhaps. But back in the day, it was cause for great public alarm. And what Guinness is pointing out is there has been a shift. There has been an embracing of, of words that, ought not to, that used to be, ought not to be said, uh, less etiquette, things that, that you might not have said publicly. You don't talk to a teacher like that. You don't speak to your parents like that. Those are not words you use in the public square. No, no, we don't talk like that. Those kinds of speeches have grown less and less. Hear me now, even among God's people. Even among God's people. And on that, please hear your pastor in the words of James 3, verse 10. Dear friends, these things ought not to be so. Is that clear? Oh God, help my words. Help me. Help me to have certain words not only not come out of my mouth, but oh God, let them not be formed in my heart. I realize I'm live streamed and uh, recorded and therefore fully accountable for all of this. But I remember during my years as a junior higher in particular, when I gave permission for my mouth to say a whole number of things that I knew at the time I shouldn't say. And I remember how long it took for the Spirit of God to cleanse those habits. Because once you give a green light to certain phrases and words, oh, buddy, and I know I'm speaking among friends, it takes a long time before those words quit showing up in your heart and quit coming out of your mouth. It's a long time. It's hard. I know that. Walk that road. And when, when we think together about models of speech, um, the first place to begin is in those closer places of influence. Family, things that we say to those close to us, how important that we speak, dare I say, Christianly. Christianly. Now, the next quote here from Guinness, he steps into another area, all right? So he says, two things are critical. First, that all faiths really are experiencing religious liberty. That's first. And second, that the bonds of unity are strengthened as the boundaries of diversity are stretched. 
And uh, I say Osgin is TCFC, yes, the case for civility, which some of you would appreciate reading and I think already have or have picked it up because I referenced it some weeks ago. Guinness uh, has developed a conversation. It shows up in several of his books and other people reference it. So anytime that happens, you, you want to pay attention. If other people are saying, you should listen to this guy. You, you want to go get the original, and I think he is. And I, I just want to synopsize in very briefly uh, some things about the broader community, the broader public square, as you would call it, that, that are, that are I, I think, original with Guinness. I'm not sure you might educate me otherwise, but he seems to be the louder voice on it today. He would say this, um, as a country, the United States of America, uh, used to have what he would call a sacred public square. That is the time when the Judeo-Christian ethic owned the place. I don't mean evangelical Christianity, but our founding fathers, our founding documents, our founding mothers, who would, whose, whose thoughts were bathed in a Judeo-Christian era, that when, when the Ten Commandments would be inscribed on public uh, uh, statues and things like that, when words from the Bible flavored presidents' speeches... And everybody knew it. They'd say a phrase and you'd go, oh, that's from the book of Exodus. And people would recognize the, the allusions to biblical truth. So a sacred public square where we, listen, we own the place. People of faith, more or less, you understand. And Guinness would suggest that down through the years, uh, as in this book, how America's genius for freedom has become its greatest threat. He's analyzing things that have happened in our country. And you can do this a lot of different ways. I'm only representing his thought. And again, I'm separating it from the text. So it's one person's thought on these things. Um, He would say that down through the years, our greatest uh, asset, that is freedom, has brought all kinds of people to our shores. And by not having a test, a religious test, to be part of our country, what starts to happen to the public space? Well, much to our chagrin, we don't own it anymore. Right? We said, welcome, come to our country. And we haven't made it a requirement. There were some of these things tried in the early days of our country and, and other parts of, of, of Christian history. You had to have a, a certain religious test to belong to things. And it never worked out so well. So our country comes along and says, there's no religious test to belong in the public square, but we own the public square, so it's okay. And he's simply saying, over the years, we don't own it anymore. Now, some in the Christian community are striving to get back to the sacred public square to take it back over again. And Guinness would say, never going to happen. Those days are over. Now, you can either love that, hate it, disagree with it, whatever you like. That's fine. Um, I didn't make it up. I'm just representing this Christian the- uh, thinker, Christian philosopher, uh, an outsider, if you will. He's an Irish guy, and he recognizes that he's speaking uh, into a country that he would not call his own, although he lives here currently. So the sacred public square. He also then talks about today's experiment, which you know about. It's called the naked public square. He doesn't mean other things that might come to your mind there, but it's the idea of a public square that is devoid of values, anyone's values. In other words, you can be, uh, you, whatever, whatever um, faith you have, it should now be private. You should keep it at home. Be a Christian, but keep it, keep it out of the public space. So no, no crosses should be worn, no star of David, no other sign of anybody's faith or lack thereof, but it should, the public space should all be cleansed. 
Now, this is, this, seems, this is the popular push these days. You should recognize it. The naked public square. Now, Guinness would quickly point out the impossibility of it because someone's values are there. You can't have no values. Um, someone's values are there. Uh, so he would say that's a, that's a foolish experiment and soon will, will be evident. Uh, this is popularized even just recently in the, um, the interviews with our new Supreme Court justice. Um, you remember one of the questions that was asked her was this. And I went, oh, we're going to be there in a month preaching about that. I know it. But a, a reporter asked her, is a practicing Catholic, uh, will, your, will your private faith make its way to the bench, to the Supreme Court? And what that person was pressing on was this, to say, we're hoping that you're going to quickly say, oh, no, 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 my values will not come into the public space. That's what they were after. It was just on the news. And, of course, she did a careful dance to say, oh, uh, you know, of course, and I'll be fair and I'll be just. And I'll. It was, in a sense, it's a foolish discussion because of, I sure hope your values are represented. We are not dissectable people. You're not either. Nothing you look at, you read the paper, watch the news, whatever you do, you, you do bring your values to that. When you go to work, do you bring your values to work? I sure hope so. Otherwise, you, you know, lie, steal, and cheat all day long. Hey, it's just my Christian values. I don't, let's belong at home. Here, in the business place, I'll cut your throat. Now, of course I hope you bring your values here, right? Uh, so people haven't thought very well about this. I would like to have my employees be honest. Uh, and as Guinness would say, if you take all faith out, uh, what, is the, what is the source of virtue then? You just rob the public square of any reason for kindness and virtue. So, so you don't mean what you think you mean. So he says, okay, sacred public square, probably not going to go back to that. We're outnumbered. And um, so, so maybe, maybe, maybe that's not the right goal. Naked public square, never going to work. Guinness then makes an argument for what he calls the civil public square. The civil public square, where he would say those of whatever faith can be that faith or not a faith, where you could wear the cross to work and not have somebody go, oh, but that offends me. It would be a, hey, get over it situation, where you could say, no, I'm a Christian and therefore I won't that, without having people go, oh dear, or somebody else could say, I'm Jewish and I don't this, or I do that, and instead of you saying, oh, but we're not into that, or I'm a Muslim and I see it this way, and rather than you getting all hot and bothered and going, oh dear, not in my workplace, that you would get over it, because their freedom is yours. That's what he's arguing for, that it should be a Christian concern that whoever a person is and whatever their faith background or lack of faith background, that they would be safe in the public square, even as you long to be. Now, if you want a fuller treatment of that, again, I would encourage you to pick up Case for Civility. You can interact with, with Guinness on that. Uh, he's pretty heady. He is a, a substantial Christian thinker and philosopher, well-respected and well-connected in, uh, in our government, may I say. Uh, many people, uh, he... He wines and dines with a number of people. You go, wow, that's interesting that you'd have their ear. He does. And uh, so he, he, he would like you to think about that. But if you look at my third bullet point here, a, a couple of things I just want to draw out. 
Our world needs models of civil, civil speech and behavior. Yes, we who believe that all humans are created in the image of God should lead the way. Do you hear this? We should be those who lead the way. In making sure that people we agree with and people we do not agree with are both treated as image bearers of God. Do you see where this is going? Once again, biblical values and great commission goals should be the riverbanks to guide our words and our behavior with all those with whom we interact. And of course, I'm using here the idea that a river needs both banks not to flood and do great damage. That's what the banks of a river do. Think of a mighty Mississippi or any other big river. It's the banks of the river that keep it in bounds, keep it from just trashing you know, whole uh, cities and so on, flooding things. Those two, those two river banks, biblical values, here's the way Christians should interact. And Great Commission goals, things like, I want to be redemptive here. And let me just a quick word of warning here. Sometimes when we think about goals, it's kind of like we want to get a baseball bat. Okay, okay, a Christian baseball bat. And hit them good. And we'll walk away saying, there, I told them. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And we're feeling good. Smug almost. I represented Jesus and convinced no one. So by Great Commission goals, I'm asking us to think about what is it you're really after? What is it you're really after? Is, are you really after just airing your, your opinion, smacking them good? Is that it? Is that what you want to do? Feel justified? I spoke up for Jesus, did you? No. Rather, as a goal, oh yes, to speak up for truth, but to do so in a way, a way that involves not only truth, but grace and kindness. It is possible. I think it's harder to speak truth and to do so in a kind way. So Guinness uh, certainly would not, nor would I, call us to hide the truth under a bushel. That isn't the point. You don't have, it's not or, it's and. I want to speak the truth. I want to do so boldly with kindness. That's, that's a biblical goal. That's a great commission goal. I'm after life change, not just feeling better about myself. Now, I'd like you to go with me to that lower section called hearing and responding to God's truth. And I would love to have you prayerfully think here with me. And I'm going to take some time where, believe it or not, I quit talking. And I'd like you to look at these. For example, the first little bullet point. Do you need to repent for some painful or ill-timed or ill-motivated or unnecessarily, unnecessary words you've recently spoken? Do you? And I would like you to think and ask God that for about 30 seconds. Ready? Go. And second, do you need to address some heart attitudes behind those ill-spoken words? Sometimes we say, well, I didn't mean to say that. And honestly, we did. 
Are there heart attitudes going on behind your words? Lord, help me to be a kind person. Lord, I am so proud. I think everybody should know what I think. Oh, God, humble my heart. Do you need to step back from social media for a season? If that's your thing. Or is there a certain topic that you need to just not talk about for a while? Lest you sin. Okay, back up front. I've given you some verses here. You might want to read and memorize. These could be family projects. You could write them on little three-by-five cards, stick them on a mirror. Projects. And then I'm asking, what's one thing you could do this week to restrain and retrain your words, to, to talk Christianly in a divided world? As we head toward closing, uh, I'd like to just ask, you know, Wednesday coming up is Veterans Day. We prayed, I think, about this earlier today. But if you are a veteran or you currently serve in our armed forces, would you just slip your hand up right where you are and look around the room, folks? Thank you. Thank you, all of you, for serving us. Thank you. Well done. Well done. I don't take that for granted, any of you. Maybe it was years ago, but thank you. Um, I value that tremendously, and we do as a church. Would you all stand with me and let us head into this next week as we pray together? Father, I thank you for the chance. Uh, Right now, in the midst of a political season and a pandemic time as well, this opportunity for us to talk Christianly. What great moments these are to practice this Christian discipline. And I pray that you would help us where there are words to be retrained or restrained and heart elements to deal with. Father, would you help us to do that by the power of the living Christ? I pray that our words would honor you not only in the walls of a church, in our homes, but also in the public square, that people would know we're Christians, not only by the, 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 the truth that we speak, but the, the, the Christ-honoring way in which we speak it. Truly loving people. Father, may it be so for us. Thank you for these dear people. Go with us now into this week. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you very soon.